Hello and welcome to this episode of the Peony Podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Kelly, who's the Chief Operating Officer from Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Lisa was raised in a small village in South Derbyshire where she attended a local village school and grew up as a self-professed teacher's pet. Her leadership qualities showed themselves early in her preschool nativity play she played Mary and had a tendency to boss her schoolmates around. At university, Lisa studied geography, which involved a lot of human geography and international relations, furthering her interest in people and social aspects of healthcare, which was sparked by a school trip to Ethiopia when she was 16. To this day, in her current role, she still manages a partnership with a hospital in Ethiopia. As a leader, Lisa emphasises the building of relationships and connections, recognising the value of every team member's contributions and understanding what they bring to the table and how they can make the best use of that. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. This episode of the Peony Podcast is sponsored by the Virtual HPN Expo. The Virtual HPN Expo will be taking place across the 17th and 18th of November on a state-of-the-art virtual events platform. The event will be CPD accredited and will host over 1,000 delegates across the two days. There'll be 40 exhibitors, 80 speakers addressing one main auditorium room and four breakout theatres with the exhibitors being hosted across four exhibition zones. There'll be key themes around health inequalities, diversity and inclusion, workforce and well-being, AI and RPA, telehealth and virtual care, and improvement and innovation. We'll also be touching upon culture and leadership. To register as a delegate or to inquire about exhibiting, please visit our website, which is www.virtualhpnexpo.com. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to, uh, to interview you today. You're welcome, very lovely to be here. Good, good, good. So, um, so as you know... This is, be kind, because this is my first time doing a podcast. So. Is it? There yeah. we go. I'm gonna, I'll only throw three or four curveball questions in there. Usually I do about 10, so no, joking. Um, <laughs> So, so, so as you know, the, the, person, the, 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 the podcast is, is all around, um, you know, you as a person, it's titled the person behind the job title. So I think an opportunity for um, our, you know, my audience in terms of the podcast audience in the sector and, and hopefully some of your colleagues and, and friends to you know, find out a little bit more about you and who you really are and, and not just the, um, you know, you as a coup, but you as a person. So, um, so let's start um, um, with your childhood, really. So, so whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up in a little village called Finden in South Derbyshire and it's about 10 minutes away from where I live now actually. But if you'd have asked me when I was growing up, would I imagine myself living here in the future or when I'm, I'm an adult, I definitely would have said no. Very small village, my gran lived close by, my auntie and uncle, my cousins, I could never get away with anything. So um, yeah, so I kind of surprised myself actually ended up back here, but, um, but yeah, but I love it now. So Home calls, eh? Yeah. Um, was it like a village where everyone knew each other? It was like kind of that yeah. small. Yeah. Yeah. All went to the local village school and uh, yeah, really lovely actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good, good. And so, so, um, and in kind of school, was you, was you academic? Was you, um, was you, was you one of, one of the top of the class? Uh, so I think I'm just trying to remember actually. I remember one teacher at a parents' evening saying to my mum, Lisa might not be the brightest people in the class, but she tries really hard. Yeah. 
yeah, maybe I was probably a bit of a teacher's pet actually as well. So I, I, def I definitely tried hard. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I was never, I was never going to get straight A's and everything, but you know, I, 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 I did okay. Yeah, I think. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And obviously, like you're, you're in, um, you know, a very senior leadership role. Do you feel that you always kind of um, had those leadership qualities in you? Did you did you show them when you was growing up? Um, well, in this in the preschool nativity, I played Mary. Yeah. Uh, and I think I I think my teachers and my school friends would probably have said I was quite bossy as a as a child. <laughs> so potentially, uh, but I don't know that anyone grows up wanting to be an NHS manager. So I don't think I had any concept of uh, this would be the career I would be in when I was young. Of course, yeah, of course. You know, I think when you're you're that age, and actually probably to you know. Um, so even you know into early adulthood, you probably don't realise the structures that exist in organisations, right? You know, you think if you work for the NHS, you're either, you know, a doctor, nurse, or a cleaner, or something like that, right? Um, and and you don't realise that there's you know those those tiers. Yeah, so, there's, um, there's still quite a belief, I think. Now I come across people, and when uh, they say what do you do, and I say I work in the NHS, they assume that you're clinical. Yeah. Um, and even holding a leadership role when I explain maybe first that I, my my title people often assume that you've got clinical background so um, yeah like as in like an operating theater rather than operations yes or just that in order to hold a very senior leadership position in a, in a hospital you must have come up through a clinical route i think that's um i found that to be a bit of a common misconception yeah well i'll come on to a second about your role because um i want to ask you how you would describe your role but before we get there um what, what did you do at university then I studied geography in my first degree. I was at the University of Manchester. Yeah. And, um, and did you do another? Well, so lots of human, I was just going to, I was just going to say, um, people sort of go geography to health, how does that work? But there's a stronger connection that, than might first appeal, appear. So a lot of human geography and a lot of international development elements of that module. In fact, I even did a module, something like social constructions of health and disease, so a bit of sociology and anthropology. So it's not quite as kind of, you know, I, I wasn't in wading in rivers and climbing volcanoes. So um, very human uh, geography. Um, and then, yes, after I studied at Manchester, I went on to do the NHS Graduate Management Training Scheme and through that I did a Master's in Health and Leadership. Okay. Jointly awarded, actually, between the University of Manchester and the University of Birmingham. Yeah, makes, makes perfect sense. So how did you find out about that national programme then? Um, because it's... Um, hmm. it is, is it something like... I might be completely making this up, but like four, in, four out of five execs go through that go through that program or chief execs maybe uh i don't I, maybe I'm, i've made that up to be honest no i think the last a handful of the last the previous um chief execs of the nhs so sitting in the department of health nhs england yeah. um, have happened to have been through the nhs graduate management training scheme but i'm not sure that that would apply you know across all of the executive teams in the nhs yeah um, so in all honesty I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after university and I applied for a handful of things probably the, the most uh, life forming thing I did at the age of 16 was I, I went to Ethiopia we had um, quite a maverick school teacher who um, managed to convince the head teacher and our parents that a school trip to Ethiopia was, was the thing to do and that really had such a, an impact on my life and I, I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do but I, I knew that I wanted to try and make a difference to Sam really Twee. 
in some way or another. So when I was looking at what to do after university, well, whilst I was at university, I did my dissertation, I went back to Addis and I did, yeah. I found a reason to go back there to, to go and do my undergraduate research. But when I was leaving, I knew I wanted to work in the public sector, but you yeah. know, third sector, but wasn't quite sure. Talk, talk to me about that trip in Ethiopia before, uh, Ethiopia before we, we move on. So, so why did it have such an impact on you? Um, so, so I grew up in a single parent family on a council estate, you know, nice uh, upbringing but you know I, I we didn't have a huge amount of spare cash um, and I, you know I I'd never had the opportunity to travel really as a young person and so to, to have that chance through school to go to Ethiopia was massive you know it was the other side of the world an entirely different world actually in some respects and I think um, it was so profound in that I, I couldn't believe that people you know only an eight-hour flight away that the way that other people in the world lived and experienced life and it made me really value what I had and appreciate what I had and put things into perspective I think what just around kind of poverty and yeah and, yeah um, just how um, fortunate we are to yeah absolutely so born in a country that is you know developed yeah, and stuff but by accident of birth I was born in the UK and um friends that I'm still in touch with now actually from all those years ago they, they were born in Ethiopia and had the life that they had now don't get me wrong um some of the research I did was around social capital and, and actually how incredibly happy um people can be with much less than we have and um, maybe a lot more to complain about so uh, so I don't want to paint a you know a, a very a huge you know but it just, it had such, um, I kind of thought, God, life isn't fair. And um, I don't know what it is, but I would like to be able to make it slightly more fair. I'd like to be able to, to make a difference. Why, why is it that by the age of 16, you know, I'd, I'd been through education. I would, you know, I'd, it just looked like I had had so many more opportunities compared to some of the other young people I was meeting when I was there. Yeah. Makes sense. And so what did you do? Did you go out there and volunteer and help out and stuff? Or did you just go and yeah, visit so the we ran, we ran a bit of a play scheme for kids. So it's like the summer holidays. We had kind right. of four weeks of um, taking a group of children from, a, from about the age of three to 15 um, and um, in one of the Cabellis and one of the Shanti areas. And we basically ran like a kind of play scheme for them. And then we got involved and we visited other projects and things um, whilst we were there too. Yeah, very nice, very nice. And so, um, so you, you was talking about um, your your degree, um, and, and and obviously, so you say you went back out there to do some research. Um, yeah, so, so your... I think I think I, I kind of maybe partly chose that degree as well because I I knew that that would be a route to get back out there. So I think that was that was part of you know what can I do it on, how can I shape it to go back. So my school continued to go for many years. My my year was the first year. Um, and so I, I timed it so I was going back out to support another students that were going, get involved in the same project, but then yeah, carry out some qualitative research around social capital, which is the concept that you know we might not be exchanging cash, but if I'm a plumber and you're a builder, I'll come and put a toilet in, and you come and build the bricks to make my house. And you know how do we how do we trade things um, in, in different ways? Okay. And find out how do we find out knowledge and intelligence about what's going on and where are the best bananas to buy whatever that might be um but yeah definitely a definitely a framework for me to go back and it's something that's that i feel very passionately about and um, has stayed with me throughout my career and very beautiful full circle um now as i sit here in my role at nuh i am also the executive director uh, lead for our 
um, hospital partnership with a hospital in Jimma, which is just outside of Addis in Ethiopia. Okay. So, so the, the partnership has been running for 26 years between NUH and Jimma. Um, so it's an absolute privilege to uh, to kind of have an opportunity to to get back involved and to take a leadership role in that. So I was just out in Jimma in, in November and I went back to the same shanty areas in Addis that I'd been and I met some of the young people I taught who have now got kids themselves, um, which oh, wow. really lovely. I bet yeah. it's yeah, real nice experience to see and yeah. a very humbling experience, no doubt. Um, and, and, and so you, you've... Um, you know, you, you, I, I was doing a bit of research, obviously, you, you've been about in, in Zambia as well um, and, and um, worked in a, in a university teaching hospital out there. Um, yeah, so after the graduate scheme, I, I worked for my first few years in Burton Hospital, which is just over the border from the East Midlands into the West Midlands. Yeah. And, um, and whilst I was there, I came across a really unique opportunity that's still running um, called NHS Improving Global Health Through Leadership Development. It's quite a okay. long title so IGH for short um, so an NHS seconded opportunity um, and they work in various um, various parts of the world I, I'm now an advisor on their board um, so there's a program that's been running in Cambodia for over a decade um, Zambia South Africa we've had partnerships in Tanzania and Kenya and other places and I, the idea is that you um, have some skills that are useful, that you take them abroad and you share them and hopefully make some sustainable changes, but you also learn and develop whilst you're there. And so you then bring those skills back to the NHS. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, absolutely amazing. What was your learning? What did you take away from it? Um, so I, I ended up being there for a year. So I, I, I oh, extended wow. it for a year. Um, and I worked with the anesthesia department. So in Zambia, the majority of anaesthetics are given by our equivalent to a um, healthcare support worker, and it's it's it wasn't a particularly medicalised right. um, specialism, so it wasn't recognised by the university. It wasn't being taught, and um, neither well, in the people that put people out for operations. Yeah, that, yeah, and that wasn't being done by equivalent of a healthcare assistant. No, so there's probably three or four trained physicians, doctors, and anaesthetists in the whole country. Oh wow. So, a few years ago, when Nigel Crisp, I can't remember exactly what year it was now, maybe 2004 or six. Nigel Crisp was a previous chief exec of the NHS. When he stood down from his national role, he um, spent a bit of time um, meeting health ministers around the world and kind of saying, how can we help? And one of the areas, so the Zambian health minister at the time got in touch and said, yeah, there's a few areas we'd really like some support with, one of which was anaesthesia. And right. so a group of people got together and set up an academic training program so there is now and it's been running ever since there, are, there is now a training program through the university of uh, lusaka through the university teaching hospital there to train uh, zambian anaesthetists when i arrived in i was there in 2012 and yep. when i got there they um the academic part of the program was going really well but the hospital wasn't functioning as well as it might so they didn't have the right drugs in theatre to be able to train people, for example. So my job was to try and bring some of my hospital management skills to strengthen the department and get it more established. Yeah. Um, and um, when I got there, they weren't quite sure what to do with me because there isn't the concept of a professional healthcare manager in Zambia. Um, you, uh, you get your leadership position by being kind of the, the longest serving clinician, doctor. Like what we spoke about previously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so um, so they really. It took me a long time to sort of um, 
earn respect and build relationships and for people to understand what value I could bring. Yeah. And I'd say that is something that has that that stayed has stayed with me in my career in the NHS that um actually that that's how the world goes around is about building relationships and building mutual respect and understanding and valuing each other's contributions and, and understanding what people bring to the table and how you make the best use of that. So I think that's definitely something but also being really creative. So, uh, you know, some of the, the financial challenges we feel like we have in the NHS, which of course we do, we, we never have enough resources for everything we'd like to provide. Yeah. But again, setting that context and perspective in an environment where, um, where, where they really don't have uh, the very basics to deliver safe healthcare often. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes, um, like you say, it just puts things into perspective and you think, you know, actually it could be worse you know, they, 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 there's always workarounds, right? And, and and I suppose, you know, if it was terrible, you know, every trust would be in a deficit and there is trusts that are in surplus, there is trusts that are in deficits. And, um, and and I suppose it's just that creative leadership, creative, finding creative ways of doing things um, and, you know, and, and kind of finding those opportunities. So actually, this kind of leads on nicely to, to one thing I was going to talk about. So you talked about there about... You know, because your background, because you weren't a senior clinician and, and that, you know, posed a challenge in kind of building credibility, building respect and so on. Obviously, um, you know, and, and we spoke before about this, but, you know, obviously you're, you're a young um, chief operating officer um, and you've been in, you know, leadership, leadership positions for, you know, a few, you know, a number of years now. And, and um, has, has that ever posed a challenge, you know, your age in, in building credibility or people respecting you and, and valuing your opinion and, and thoughts and so on? You're being very, you're being very polite, Jack. So, so yeah, I, I am 34 and I'm, I definitely wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago that I would be in this role at the age of 34, yeah. maybe a few years ago. Um, so there's something about right place, right time, um, hopefully right value and attitudes. Um, I've had a lot of people support me in my career. I feel really lucky. People have maybe taken a chance on me um, have recognised that I've got potential and, uh, and drive and, and maybe sometimes taken a bit of a risk on me in terms of appointing me to, to positions where perhaps they could have chosen a candidate that had got decades more experience than me. So I, I feel very fortunate um, that. Yes, it, it does. It does. But it usually doesn't last very long in terms of... Um, People, people, people are quite forward. A lot of the time, people will comment or they will ask me the question. Um, what well, will ask you how old you are directly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember early on, you know, a few years ago now, but being on call and um, needing to go into the hospital and uh, turning up. I'd been in town, so turning up with my jeans and my Ugg boots on, and people sort of looking past me, being like, "Yeah, but who's the real on-call manager or on-call director? You know, it can't, can't possibly be you." So, so, um, so I've had a little bit of that, and I think definitely. Particularly, I, I think one of the challenges with um, working in multidisciplinary teams, if you're a consultant, you have usually worked in that organisation for a long time or you intend to. There's a bit of mobility in the consultant workforce. You, know, you might relocate for a reason, but quite often a consultant chooses a, an organisation for life and they will stay for, you know, for a very long period of time. The management career is quite different to that and mm. actually 
don't think it would be healthy for me to stay in this role for 10 years or 20 years. It, for me, it's much more of um, a relay race and I, I'm holding the baton and I have the privilege of sitting in this chair now and I will give the best I can for a period of time. But, but then it'll be time for someone else to come in and he'll have a different set of skills and be better at me, you know, at things than, than I've been. And, and so I think our careers kind of rub up against each other sometimes. And I think just as a manager gen generally, age you know younger or older you have to really work and earn that credibility from a from a clinical team to, to know that you're going to stick around long enough to make a difference to to demonstrate you've got the same value set so actually you know sometimes people think oh she's the manager all she cares about is the budgets and you know the processes and, and actually i don't i get out of bed every morning because i really want to make a difference to patients um, and I really want to support the, the clinical and non-clinical teams here at NUH to deliver the best possible patient care. Yeah. And that means looking after and supporting them. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes it's, it's not just for age, but, but, but where it has been and where people have questioned it or where I, you know, where I felt like, you know, people might be, might be worried about that. For me, it, it's about delivery. So it, it doesn't last long and people soon forget that once you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Demonstrate your credibility once you earn respect, once you show interest, um, and you are authentic in how you approach things. I, I never walk into a situation and pretend I know it all. You know, I, I might be the chief operating officer anyway. I still have a lot to learn, and I, I hope I'm always saying that. You know, I, I yeah. don't think you've ever been learning. And I think having, you know, being a little bit humble and um, sort of recognizing that, allowing yourself to be a little bit vulnerable, which probably wasn't very fashionable years ago in leadership mm. now I, I i hope that that's how i build my it's authentic leadership isn't it right you know yeah. For, yeah. for anyone to to act think pretend they know everything is just it's impossible um and that's why you know you've got consultants or you've got you know specialists in certain areas because for that reason um could they run what could they do what you do no chance but could you do what they do? No chance, you know, and it's, it's yeah. about complementing skill sets. Um, part of that role is about facilitating, bringing the right people together, supporting them, yeah. um, trying to, you know, recognising what everyone brings to the table and you all bring something different. Yeah, of course. So you talk about values a lot as well. What, what, what are your values? Um, so integrity and authenticity are definitely really important to me. Um, kind of altruism, uh, so the the whole kind of you know, how do we how do we leave the world a better place than we than we found it and how do we leave a role a better place than we found it or an organisation? Mm. Um, no, well, that's weird that you said so. So um, I worked for a, um, when I first started in my career, you know, for a recruitment business, and there was a lady that had been there for a number of years, and she left, and the chief executive at the time said, "You can always, um, you know, see if someone's done a good job or not. You know, is the place better?" Um, as they're leaving than when they arrived and it's always stuck with me that actually and it's thought right have have you or have i or have someone that's leaving this organization or whatever is the is the organization better since they've been here um and that shows a good kind of tenureship doesn't it yeah and sometimes that's quite hard in a in a black and white perspective in a chief operating officer role because we're we're, we're often measured on um, performance targets that are rag rated and that they're either red or they're green. You know, you're either you're either delivering or you're not. And increasingly, over my time in the NHS, those, those targets have become increasingly difficult to deliver. And not least since COVID, um, you know, we are not delivering the access to care 
in a timely way in the way we would like to across across a lot of areas at the moment and so you have to you have to dig deep and you have to think about different ways of how you add value it's not just always about those bits it's about yeah. how you people it's about how you can help people to do their job you know there's there's different ways of measuring success and i think remembering that in these roles is really important yeah no um uh, absolutely absolutely so so talk to me about um your, your current role then so how, how would you describe your chief operating officer role um so if someone asks what does it mean i will often say to them my job is to help the clinicians to deliver high quality patient care so my job is to it's is to support and help and lead others um to to run the hospital yeah um, on a day-to-day -day basis my responsibility is the running of the hospital yeah. so, um, the, obviously the book stops with the chief executive of, of an organization but often um, her role is, is a bit more of an outward facing one so working with our system partners working at a regional and you know informing and contributing at a national level so the day-to-day -day running and organizing the hospital sits with the chief operating officer yeah. obviously alongside a huge amount of support from the rest of my executive colleagues my medical director my nursing director and others as yeah well. of course of course um no day is the same it's really diverse you could work all 24 hours of the day and your job would still not feel like it was done yeah um how do you deal with that how do you deal with that mentally because you know you you know like i suppose you know like in sales like in leadership like in um you know there's there's real there's no end to, to this is there you know you you could always do something so how do you do you feel like you've accomplished things every day or do you have to reflect on that and say right what have I actually done today how do you deal with that um so there's something for me about um wanting to model the right behavior and I think that helps me keep my own balance so if my managers or aspiring chief operating officers look at me and think bloody hell she looks knackered and exhausted and she's grumpy and you know she she's always in the office that job just looks horrendous no one will ever want to follow me and do this <laughs> and so that helps me have a bit of a conscious and, and and i often talk to my teams about the importance of work-life balance that when you're doing a leadership role like this you you can't compartmentalize your life or at least i i struggle to do that some people are better than others but actually when you turn up at work what's going on at home what happened in the car on the way here what you're doing tonight is all part of who you are and what you bring to the table and so i think recognizing that that work-life balance is, that's really important for me and i really encourage that and i recognize that i can't do that if i don't if i don't do that for myself and i don't look after myself I, I don't think you can work ridiculously long hours and be productive for that whole time you, mm -hmm. you can exist you can be i can i can be here but actually i'm really doing my best work um and so so i try to make sure that i have hobbies and have a life outside of work um, it will make me come back the next day so last night i was doing some yoga and hopefully that makes me come back into work this morning slightly fresher than i might have been if you know if we've been up working all yeah night. so i think it's hard i mean you know i i don't some some people i think you want to be a certain type of person who wants to be a chief operating officer people sometimes people look at me and think i'm a bit mad um but it's hugely rewarding you know when when you see things progress and move forward and you see people develop and teams develop and you see us achieve things for our patients it's incredibly rewarding to have been a small part of that yeah it's challenging and so you have to have a bit of discipline you have to surround yourself by great people so having really good support around you is really important having a well, really in terms of outside of work 
Uh, both. both. Yeah. So I was specific to about in-work there. So, uh, you know, whether that's your admin support, whether that's your deputy, whether that's, you know, my general managers or my clinical leaders, but the team around you, I think, is so is so important to, to, to you. Um, but also, yeah, outside of work, having, you know, making sure you can switch off. So, for example, tonight I'm going paddleboarding. I've got a really lovely group of friends that I do that with now. It's great to not talk about the NHS or COVID and just, you know... <laughs> Yeah, so we, we haven't spoke about COVID yet. I'm sure I'll come on to it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, all, it's all about balance for me. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you've got, you know, you have to, there's quite an incredible burnout, I think, of, of chief operating officers. And I think, you know, if it, it, you've got to play the long game. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. I have to manage my own expectations about what I want to achieve. I've, I've been in this post now just over a year and there are things I wanted to do in the first three months that I've still not got around to doing. And you have to kind of, you know, I guess be kind to yourself a bit. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Um, so, um, in terms of that um, that role from your, um, you know, fr- from the roles before you were were a coup, what's that step up been like for you in terms of workload, pressure, responsibility? Is it is it you know like a Grand Canyon jump? You know, in, uh, is, is it is it a big big gap? I, I think it's all relative, actually. Right. You know, I, I I don't think mine is necessarily the hardest job in the organisation. I think the general manager's jobs actually are some of the most difficult organisation, challenging jobs in, in organisation. So I think it's all relative. On, on day one of the graduate management training scheme, um, here's me being vulnerable now. When I got the letter through to say where I was going to be, it, it said ENT and I had to Google what ENT stood for because I fortunately never had to go to a hospital for an ear, nose or throat appointment. And so yeah. I didn't realise what department that was. Yeah. Um, and, but on day one in that job, that I was managing a group of secretaries. I was responsible, you know, you're given a huge amount of responsibility on that scheme. Um, and so, so that was hugely challenging. You know, and I, that was straight out of the, the um, national management programme, did you say? Yeah, so I'd been to university, I'd, I'd taken a year out to do some yeah. training, and on the 1st of September, I start the management training scheme, but you start with a job title, you walk into the hospital on that day one, and you're concurrently learning as you go, you're kind of training on the job, and there's academic things that, that support it along the way, but, so that that's a massive... I was going to say, that must have been... Job. And, yeah. and the secretaries were at least twice my age, uh, and did not give me an easy ride. They were some of the most challenging people I've I've ever had to try and lead and manage. So I think it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think it's all relative, wherever you are in your career journey. And I, I have moved quite quickly through my career, and so I have probably never sat incredibly comfortable year after year in the same role. I've, I've been moving and, and learning quite a lot, and so you're kind of constantly then on this sort of, upward learning spike i suppose so um yeah yeah i think there is there is a there is a big difference between being in a board level role and a non-board level role for me there, there is quite a significant difference you you have um you have a responsibility so not only do i have my portfolio of responsibilities chief operating officer but i also have a corporate responsibility um of taking taking the decisions you know, with the rest of my colleagues about the direction of the organisation um, that might be out with my immediate portfolio. So, um, and the other thing I think is probably the politics with the small p, some of the kind of inter-system regions, some of the national um, part of my role, I think, is to help interpret some of that, to help um, 
make it meaningful for the organization to challenge it where I don't think it's appropriate or where I'm not quite sure the direction we're getting externally is, is right for our, our organization and our patients and some of that stuff is is you know yeah that's a kind of you're continuously learning to develop yes yeah. makes sense talk to me about some of the leaders that you've worked with them because you said about you know people that have you know you know been good to you ultimately and taken risks and and that kind of stuff so what um is there any particular people that have really like stayed with you and, 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 and you kind of are really grateful for them being in your, in your life, in fact, you know, not just yeah. career, but in your life? Yeah, definitely. So again, one of the amazing things about the management training scheme is you, um, you're exposed to some really senior leaders uh, across the NHS, both locally, but also nationally very early on. Um, and I now try to give back. So I will now go on to those kind of day one induction programs or as part of the recruitment process for the next generation of management training because I recognise that people gave their time up. And so, yes, there's absolutely people that are still part of my network that I still pick up the phone to and go, I'm having a tough day. Got any thoughts? Can, you know, can, I, can I talk through something with you? Um, so incredibly grateful for that and for um, offering opportunities and development and um, kind of coaching me through things. Um, yes, it's, it, it continues to be a really important part of my network and a part of my resilience, I think, in terms of um, this role. And you collect them as you go along in your career. So, you know, I'm, I'm still in contact with people from when I worked in London or when I worked in Coventry. Um, and hopefully we, you know, we support each other because... Yeah actually the, the challenges we are facing are much the same and you don't need to keep reinventing the wheel all the time actually someone will either be going through it or will have gone through it something similar yeah yeah makes sense makes sense um, and what um so i've asked you about your values and, and 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 you said about you know integrity and um and and um authenticity and that kind of stuff would you say that they very much kind of dovetail into your leadership style um, yeah. Actually, I'll ask that question. You know, what is your leadership style? Would you say? Um, so I, I think it's really important to be a visible leader. So I try to get out and about in the organisation. So yesterday, for example, we we have a community paediatrics team, and yesterday I went out to one of the twelve health health centres that our teams work out of. Um, and. Uh, and last Friday, I was in the children's hospital and I visit ED this evening before I go. And so I, I think getting out and about in the organisation and teams seeing you um, when things are going well, really important. And when things are not going so well, uh, to, to be shoulder to shoulder. So if I think about last winter or COVID, some of the most challenging times in my career um, and definitely not having all the answers, but being shoulder to shoulder. Um, or socially distanced uh, <laughs> where appropriate but you know looking in the, the whites of people's eyes and and knowing that actually we might not have all the answers but we're going to stick out together and we're going to work out what we need to do we're going to find yeah. this together i think i think that's really really important and people remember that people remember how you made them feel um so that's that's really important um i just think listening is incredibly important the organization here is huge Seventeen thousand people um we you can never you can never communicate enough so trying to make sure that people feel like they know what's going on in the organization but also that they're at the heart of shaping it i had the privilege when i was at coventry to um 
University Hospitals Coventry, Warwickshire, was partnershiped with the Virginia Mason Hospital in, in Seattle in the state for five years um, as part of a, a, an NHS formal partnership. And it, it was all about using quality improvements to um, help make the hospital be the safest it, it, it could. And I learned some really key things there about the people who are doing the work know the work best. They, they know how to make it better. They're the people you need to get engaged in improving it. I don't know. Uh, you know, so getting the right people around a problem and letting the people who do the work really shape what happens with it, I think is really yeah. important. And, and, and kind of enabling that to be facilitated. And, and, and celebrating success. So my general managers would tell you that um, I make them, uh, which is not, it's not a comfortable thing. We often don't like doing it. Um, I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily an NHS thing, it's probably a British thing, but I, I often encourage them at the end of a meeting to say, right, well, one thing's gone well this week what's gone well because you know we often spend a lot of time talking about the things we're not getting right and how we can improve and that's right mm. but also taking time to celebrate when things are going well it's really important yeah yeah my my so i'm i'm kind of, i've got a mentor and kind of a coach and stuff um that i work with and you know he always says you know what, what's the challenges what's the challenges on so forth and then he always goes so then what's gone well and it, and it makes you think and, and it is important isn't it because like you say you know you you are focused on what can be improved rather than what's gone well all the time and and you do need to 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 you know to, to celebrate your your wins however big or small they are so so um completely completely resonate with that um talk to me about um about kind of um you know what what you do to kind of relax number one you've got obviously you've got a huge role within a, a huge organization um what you one of the top definitely in the top 10 large trust but top five maybe yeah we were top four before manchester did this big merger so not yeah. quite sure that does to us but yeah we're, yeah we're, yeah really so important. so so you know you you're in one of the fifth largest nhs trusts on the board um you know chief operating officer so so you know like you say on a day-to-day -day basis um you know running running the the hospitals you're, you're multi-site aren't you yeah um yeah. so it's not even like you're you're looking after one <laughs> um so what is it you do to un, uh, you know relax relax and unwind and and kind of give yourself that kind of mental breathing space um because work can be so consuming right yeah, 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 sure I can. So I mentioned earlier, I did yoga last night, so I did a bit of yoga and recently a bit of paddle boarding. Prior to COVID, um, I have always played netball since I was at school. Um, love team sport, love the fact you, when you get on the court and you chase after the ball, you can't think about anything else. Um, but haven't played since February now, so well, I'm hoping we get back to that soon. Uh, and then the other... Yeah, I have a real love for traveling, so whenever I can, you, you'll find me abroad in my annual leave. Um, and I also really enjoy the theatre, um, so both watching it and a little bit in my spare time doing a bit of amateur stuff. Amdram, do a bit of Amdram, do you? Yeah. There we go, there you go. That, 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 that Mary and that preschool play, yeah, maybe that, was that it. shone through, didn't it? <laughs> you know, that main role, you, uh, you didn't want to yeah. give up the lights. Um, um, I can't remember what you said. Um, I was going to talk to you about. This ain't good for the podcast, is it? Um... So I'll um, I'll fill the space where you're where you're thinking, Jack. So I should have been performing this summer in Minac. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a theatre on the south coast, kind of cut out of the rock. And um, my Derby uh, Shakespeare company should have been performing Mary Wives of Windsor, and I was due to be one of those wives. So um, we've postponed it, and and um, hopefully we're we're going to be there next August. 
Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. There you go. I remember what I was going to say. So um, you mentioned about being abroad. And I th- I'm sure when we, when we first spoke, you said that just before COVID, you was abroad. And um, so I think I managed to get one of the, the last uh, holidays before COVID. And then I have also managed a trip to Croatia um, before it's, uh, it's just gone onto the quarantine list. But I was there a few weeks ago. So um, Happy days. So what was that like? Because it seems to be like, like, you know, obviously, you know, Paul, by the way, and, and obviously I spoke to him and it's like the coups go on holiday just as like winter's ending. And uh, it's, you've had your, your three months of, of um, pressure and, uh, and, and, and so on. Um, what was that like, though, coming back from holiday and going kind of straight into COVID? OK. Um, yeah, it was. Was challenging it, interesting I was in Sri Lanka so it was it was starting to come east um, and when I arrived into Sri Lanka they were checking your temperature in the hotel in the airport there was leaflets about it but actually when I landed back at Heathrow two weeks later there was still nothing in the UK so it, it, it that was sort of the first week of March and then it was a few weeks later when we went into lockdown yeah um, but, so we, so I was kind of was kind of thinking about it while I was on holiday because I you know we kind of sensed that we, we weren't quite sure what it looked like but we were we were sort of sensing that, that there was something coming um in part it, it was exhausting of course it was um and in, and in part it was slightly overwhelming and it was scary not to know what to do there was so much unknown and the guidance was changing all the time um but actually, when I look back now, I have an incredible sense of pride for what the organisation achieved and what the NHS as a whole and what, what our society achieved. You know, the, the coming together of everybody through that period was incredible. Mm. Um, the, the clinical teams here refashioned pathways and delivered care in new creative ways using digital technology that, frankly, we've been trying for about a decade to get some of these changes happening. We'd gone from having, we went from having over 200 medically safe for transfer patients. That's patients that are really ready to go on to, to go to an, either another care environment or to go home with the right support. Mm. We went from having over 200 of those patients in the hospital to, to 30. And we've maintained that position between 30 and 40 since the peak of COVID. And so actually now I, I kind of find myself when I'm reflecting on it, thinking about lots of the incredible things that we achieved. Yeah. As, as things well. that need to stave now right um yeah and, and try, how do we hold on to some of those yeah we, how do we embed them and, and make them the way that we do things around here yeah but um, but but mostly it was the people honestly P- people left their families to come and live in university accommodation so that they could continue to care for our patients you know they they so many of them went absolutely the extra mile and and that makes me so proud and so humble to again to have been a really small part of that yeah no, incredible incredible well it's been uh, a, a lovely to interview you and and one that i've thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed and it's uh, been um brilliant to get to know the person behind the job title thank you thanks jack Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.